Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. In today's episode, we're going to be addressing the issue of student substance use. Given the complex nature of this issue, we have decided to break this episode into two parts. In the first part, we're going to make sure that we understand the legal framework related to addressing student substance use. In a companion piece, we will address best practices, trends, and strategies for working with parents when it comes to addressing student substance use. We're very happy to have with us today, John Worthington, who is now working at Legal One as an education law specialist and previously worked as the director of the Office of Special Education for the New Jersey Department of Education. Thanks so much for being here, John. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. So as we begin our discussion, uh, I think it's important to step back and consider some of the fundamental legal requirements that are in place when it comes to school districts trying to address issues of student substance use and make sure that we are supporting students. Um, Every school district in the state of New Jersey is required to have in place a comprehensive drug and alcohol counseling program. Ideally, school districts have in each of their schools student assistance coordinators who are trained to address issues of student substance use. Although New Jersey does not specifically mandate that there be a SAC available in each school. If school districts do not have a student assistance counselor in place in each school, those same functions have to be served. We have to still have a comprehensive drug and alcohol counseling program. And as part of that program, students need to know they have a safe place to go when they are struggling with issues of student substance use. And as part of having that safe space, we have clear requirements under federal law, under 42 CFR Part 2, to make sure that we're doing everything possible to maintain the confidentiality of information that we may learn during a comprehensive drug and alcohol counseling program. And that's for obvious reasons. If we want students to come forward and share information as they're struggling with issues of substance use, they're going to be much less likely to do that if they believe that everything they share about their own struggles will be turned over to law enforcement or even to parents or others, um, and the student could potentially face immediate negative consequences for having opened up and shared regarding their struggles with substance use. So under federal and state law, there are very strong presumptions that we're going to protect the confidentiality of information learned in drug and alcohol counseling uh, program sessions. 
Of course, there are exceptions. If a student is in a situation where they're revealing information that shows the student is in imminent danger or presents an imminent danger to others, there becomes a legal obligation to share that information as appropriate to address that danger. In some cases, um, that could involve sharing information with law enforcement, uh, sharing information with school administration, sharing information in some cases with other parents or students, depending on the facts of the situation. So there are these narrow exceptions. For example, if a student is involved in drug distribution or drug dealing efforts, where we would have to uh, share that information with appropriate officials, including law enforcement, to address uh, that drug dealing aspect of what's going on. But the general rule is that we're trying to create a safe space for students to open up to share um, information about their struggles and to make sure they're getting the support that they need. We also have a strong legal requirement in place in New Jersey. If we have any reason to suspect that a student may be under the influence of alcohol or any controlled dangerous substance, we have a legal requirement to make sure that we are addressing those students' needs right away. And that includes arranging for an immediate medical examination of any student we suspect may be under the influence of alcohol or a controlled dangerous substance. And the biggest reason that we have that legal requirement is to try to keep students safe, to make sure that if there are immediate medical issues, we're addressing those issues. Now, sometimes a staff member might suspect a student is under the influence and it might turn out that the student was not under the influence that the student perhaps was just up late um, and the staff member misunderstood the signs that they were seeing from that student um, there are times where a referral is made in good faith and the student turns out to be just fine new jersey law makes clear that it was still the appropriate and required thing to do to make that referral if we had a good faith reason to think a student might be under the influence. And we have case law that very clearly establishes this requirement. Uh, we had a case in New Jersey involving a longtime vice principal by the name of Joseph Graceffo. And in that case, the vice principal received a referral from a staff member indicating that a student may be under the influence of marijuana. In that case, the vice principal followed the protocol that was in place in that school district and conferred with the school nurse. And based on that uh, consultation with the school nurse, together they determined that the student did not need to go out for a medical examination. The parents were informed. In that case, that same student, a couple of weeks later, died of a drug overdose. And the school district ended up bringing tenure charges against that vice principal. And the commissioner of education ultimately ruled that the vice principal did not follow state law, that the vice principal should have arranged for an immediate medical examination of that student because a staff member had indicated the student may be under the influence and had articulated some reason for that concern. So after the Graceffo case, we do have a clear bright line rule in New Jersey. If we have any staff member who is expressing concern that a student may be under the influence and gives some reason for that concern based on training that the staff member should be receiving on an annual basis, the student must be sent out for a medical examination, even if the school nurse disagrees 
with a with the staff member and even if the school nurse does not see any reason that the student could be under the influence so it's a very important legal requirement it's not meant to be punitive it's meant to make sure that we are addressing the student and dealing with any immediate medical needs that we may have there is also a memorandum of agreement between education and law enforcement that in some cases requires information to be shared with law enforcement so the example i had mentioned earlier of a student who may be involved in drug distribution efforts would be an example where a school district would be required to share that information with law enforcement if the school seizes what appears to be drug paraphernalia the school district would be required to contact law enforcement and turn over that drug paraphernalia to law enforcement. Even here, we have some interesting exceptions where information sharing could be limited. If a student comes forward and is seeking help from the school district and voluntarily turns over the drugs that they have in their possession, the school district would still turn over the drugs to law enforcement but would not in that case be sharing the name of the student because the student would have voluntarily come forward and asked for help. And New Jersey carves out an exception where we're not going to pursue criminal sanctions in that sort of a case. We also have strong rules prohibiting um, possession or distribution of marijuana or other drugs or alcohol at school or at school-sponsored functions. That has not changed, even with the recent constitutional amendment that we'll discuss in a moment, even with the recent enabling legislation that deals with adult use of cannabis, um, the rules regarding students and any others in school or at a school-sponsored function have not changed as far as possession or use of marijuana. And as we think about these issues, we always have to uh, keep in mind issues of equity in how we carry out our code of student conduct and enforce that code of student conduct. We have seen in New Jersey and across the nation significant disparities in discipline rates that are linked to race and ethnicity. Sometimes unconscious biases come out and we are not reacting the same way to all students and may not even uh, realize that those implicit or unconscious biases are present. So we have to be very aware as we are addressing student substance use that we are not reacting differently and more harshly to students of a particular race or ethnicity. Um, and where we do see those significant disparities, we have to address them, acknowledge them, and work to reduce those disparities over time. We also, of course, do have um, in New Jersey a constitutional amendment that was approved in uh, November of 2020, enabling legislation that was approved in March of this year. And I'm going to ask you, John Worthington, to take a moment and walk through some of the key aspects of that constitutional amendment and the enabling legislation regarding adult use of cannabis. Thank you, David. Um, so yes, as you noted, in November of 2020, the voters of New Jersey approved a constitutional amendment, uh, Article 7, Paragraph 13 of the Constitution now legalizes uh, cannabis 
for use by those 21 and older in New Jersey. Then in February of 2021, February 22nd, um, three laws were passed, chapter 16, 19, and 23, legalizing cannabis in New Jersey. And the laws address different areas. Uh, the first section creates the commission overseeing the cultivation, distribution, and retail sale of cannabis products in New Jersey. There is a series of laws ad addressing changes to the criminal laws. Um, certain laws had to be repealed because now it's no longer illegal to have certain quantities of cannabis in your possession or to utilize it. Uh, pending cases against criminal defendants were dismissed through those laws and various changes again were made to the statute in that regard. And the third set of laws deals with how law enforcement will uh, work with those under age 21 for whom cannabis is not legal in New Jersey and sets forth a series of provisions for how law enforcement officers will uh, deal with those under 21 if they're in possession or using uh, cannabis products. Um, so again, it's small quantities of marijuana and hashish are decriminalized. So for marijuana, six ounces or less is not illegal to possess or, or utilize in New Jersey, 17 grams of hashish. If it's over those quantities, then it's still an illegal substance in the state. Um, there's limitations on how law enforcement can interact with individuals who are in possession of marijuana, including minors. For those 21 and over, yes, you're in, allowed to possess marijuana. You can transport it in a vehicle. Just like alcohol, though, there can be no open container, so to speak. You can't be utilizing it while operating a motor vehicle. Um, you can't use it in public spaces. There is a provision in the law that would allow towns to create a public space where you could use marijuana or cannabis products, but otherwise it would be um, something that you can utilize in your home, uh, but not necessarily in a public space. And again, you can transport it, but not use it while operating a motor vehicle. Uh, for those under age 21, there's a series of laws that have been put in place with regard to how officers will interact with them if they're in possession or using um, cannabis products. And Basically, there are a lot of limitations on what law enforcement can do when you're dealing with those under 21 and minors. Uh, they cannot ask for consent to search those that are under 21 to see if they're in possession of cannabis products. They cannot compel them to turn over an ID um, if they do interact with those that are under 21. So they can use their persuasive powers uh, to seek to obtain an ID from someone under 21, but you can't actually compel them to turn it over. Um, they cannot be arrested or detained. So yes, the officers can have certain interactions with them, but you cannot detain or arrest them. There is also a provision with regard to the smell or odor of marijuana it does not provide probable cause to seek to search an individual or to stop them to confront them with regard to using uh, marijuana or cannabis products. And even if they see the items in plain sight, that does not provide probable cause uh, to search a person that's under age 21. So there's very strict limitations on how you're going to interact with minors. When an officer does interact with a minor, you'll provide them a written warning and notification to their parent. The tricky part of that will be you can't compel them to provide an ID. So again, the officers are going to have to interact very carefully in order to obtain their identity and provide the notification to the parent. For second, third and subsequent offenses. Again, it would be a written warning. The difference being that with a second offense, the officer can provide and should provide information about treatment for um, 
drugs or alcohol issues. And on the third offense, there would be a referral to treatment made along with the warning and notification again to the parents. The one tricky part of this, which is being worked on by law enforcement now, is knowing whether it is actually a second or third offense. If you're in a different jurisdiction, the second or third time that you're confronted by law enforcement, they might not know that you had a first warning or a second warning issued. And so the Attorney General is working to develop a system to allow this warning system to be implemented more efficiently in the state. Right now, it's going to depend on law enforcement basically having discussions with each other, different departments communicating. It's highly unlikely that a, someone pulled over or caught in possession is actually going to be receiving a second or third warning right now because the officer is probably not going to be aware of which offense it is and unable to know that it would be the stepped up enforcement provisions. Um, and with regard to enforcement, one important part of this when interacting with someone under 21, interacting with minors, it's very important for law enforcement. There's been guidelines issued by the Attorney General, very detailed guidelines. They have to interact very carefully. They have to adhere to every provision in the law. It is a criminal civil rights violation if a law enforcement officer acts in conflict with these laws when addressing someone that's under age 21. And it doesn't matter if your intent was not to do so. So intent is not a factor. If you violate any provision of law when interacting with someone under 21, the law enforcement officer can be charged criminally. Um, and so it's a very serious consequence for law enforcement, which is going to, I think, make them act very cautiously when interacting with those that are underage for possession or use of uh, cannabis or marijuana products um, because they have to be very careful. And that is going to have an impact on schools. Now, when you're looking at schools, remember some have SRO, school resource officers. If they are an SRO that's certified under the program in New Jersey, they are still a law enforcement officer. If they're a security guard who maybe is a retired law enforcement officer, but not actually an SRO, how they can interact with students will be different. But the SROs are going to be treated like police. So their ability to interact with the students in the schools is going to be limited, just like any law enforcement officer in the town where the school is located. And they're going to have to be very careful in their interactions with students. However, what you have to keep in mind, school district employees still have full authority over the school and the students in the school. Marijuana, cannabis products, alcohol are still not permitted on school grounds. School policy can prohibit all of that. Students caught in possession can still be disciplined by the school district. Anything in their possession can still be seized. School districts still with a reasonable suspicion can search students and determine whether they're in possession of marijuana, alcohol, or any other um, controlled dangerous substance. So all of the school district's authority remains in place. Uh, David, you had noted earlier, Earlier, the interactions with law enforcement are still in the memorandum of agreement. They would interact just as they have in the past. Reporting is required in some circumstances, allowed in other circumstances. They can still proceed in that way um, going forward unless the memorandum is changed in the future. Um, as far as seized products, they still should be turning marijuana cannabis products over to law enforcement for disposal. There is no mechanism for school districts to dispose of them. And so they would still want to turn that over to local law enforcement when it sees so that they can dispose of the product. Thank you for your great insights today, John.
There are so many issues that we need to consider, and we certainly have to be aware of the changing legal requirements related to addressing student substance use, including the new requirements related to cannabis use. Thank you, David. This concludes our episode reviewing the legal framework related to addressing student substance use. As a reminder to our listeners, we have also developed a part two podcast episode that addresses current trends, best practices, and strategies for working together with parents to address student substance use. With that, I want to thank our listeners, as always, for listening to the Legal One podcast. We appreciate all the great work you are doing to support our students. Be safe, stay well, and we look forward to having you on a future episode of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.